If we dwell too much, and by dwell I mean funnel public dollars and investments and such into carbon capture and storage, we then neglect those real greenhouse gas emissions reductions um, in our transport system, in our buildings, in our industry, et cetera, that have to happen too, and that also can create a whole bunch of incredible co-benefits. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we welcome to the show Dr. Sarah Birch to discuss the third IPCC report, Climate Change 2020, Mitigation of Climate Change. This IPCC report provided an updated assessment of global climate change mitigation pledges and progress and explains developments in emissions reductions and mitigation efforts. Sarah is a lead author of the SIX Assessment Report, and she is Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Management at the University of Waterloo, Canada. She talks with our colleague, Joseph Mikett, Director of the Energy Program. Here's Joseph now to start the discussion. Sarah, I'm really pleased that you're here today. Talk to us about your work and, and your work as an IPCC author for Working Group 3 as, uh, as part of the SIX Assessment Report. I want to start with like a very high-level question. Does the report tell us that 1.5C is possible? The report has a couple of really important messages when it comes to what the future might look like. It tells us that without accelerated immediate action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, so not in 10 years or in 20 years, but right now, and moving a lot faster than we have in the past, that target of limiting warming to no more than two degrees and ideally less than 1.5, is out of reach. So it does not yet say that it is out of reach. It says that there are theoretically possible pathways to constraining warming, but we're not moving anywhere near fast enough. One of the things that I personally have observed in the time that I've studied climate change, when I first got to this field in, let's say, 2009, the, the degree of warming that we expected to see was pretty high. We regularly talked about four, five, six degrees centigrade at the end of the 21st century. And success from a policy standpoint was often still stabilizing atmospheric CO2 concentrations, which is not the same as, as preventing a certain level of temperature warming. So what does the report have to say to somebody who is studying this problem 10 or 12 years ago? So that's an interesting question because you're absolutely right that 10 years ago or so, scenarios did not rule out the possibility of extreme levels of warming, four, five, six degrees. That's not to say that we had any grasp of what that would actually look like for human societies. I mean, that is a catastrophic level of warming. But given the trajectory that emissions were on and the pledges and policies in place, those were not ruled out. They're still not entirely ruled out, but generally this report and the literature that it's based on, the science that it's based on, are starting to say that those high-end scenarios are less likely, but we are still on track to you know, 2.7, 2.8, whatever degrees of warming. So that puts us past this threshold that we are collectively aiming for, right, to limit warming to no more than two degrees. Keeping in mind, of course, that this two-degree target is a bit of a complex one, right? It's not like there are no impacts if warming is less than two degrees. We're living with impacts today. And as you will have seen from my working group two and, and one, we're already in a warming world and we are seeing you know, impacts in the US and Canada all around the world right now. 
And there will be some irreversible losses like biodiversity losses that would happen with 1.5 degrees coral bleaching, this kind of thing, or two degrees. The current pledges and targets, the language of net zero didn't even exist 10 years ago. That was off the charts ambitious. And that's now kind of commonplace. So I think that's that's heartening. We have to temper that optimism with a bit of a dose of reality, but we can get to that. Given that you are among the cadre of experts who really thought about net zero, maybe we could take a moment to describe what does net zero mean? And how do we think about or study net zero worlds? What are the tools that we use that the IPCC was summarizing in this report? Yeah, great question. So what is net zero? Net zero means putting no more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere than we take out of it. So the oceans take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. The oceans have been giving us an enormous buffer. They've been forgiving a lot of our sins for decades, uh, absorbing heat and absorbing carbon for us thankfully, but they're maxing out in terms of that capacity. Uh, Soils, forests, other natural ecosystems absorb carbon. Depending on our agricultural practices, we can enhance that capacity. We can lock that soil, that carbon into the soil, uh, but we're not doing a very good job of that yet. So essentially we need to balance this out, right? We need to allow the planet and or our technologies like carbon capture and storage and that kind of thing to suck out as much carbon as we're putting in. But you have to, you know, you think about, if you think about the planet as a child in bed with a fever and we're, we're laying blanket after blanket on this child, right? So that the child is heating up and we're laying these blankets progressively on them and the fever worsens. If we just sort of stop laying blankets on that child, you still have a fevered child underneath 10 blankets. We actually need to take the blankets off of the child. We actually need net negative emissions to really bring the planet back on track to a healthy, stable climate because we're already seeing changes now. So it's not just about slowing the increase of emissions or even leveling them off. They have to decline rapidly and enter net negative territory. So this is the, I mean, this is the scale of the challenge that's at hand. And, and this is such an interesting time to be working in, in the climate change space because we see the highest over the last 10 years the highest levels of emissions in human history. And this is despite all of our talk about it, you know, all of our policies and actions and the incredibly elevated level of public discourse on climate change that we, you know, we wouldn't have seen 20 years ago or 15 years ago. So the highest levels of greenhouse gas emissions in human history. But in, you know, this report shows that in like 18 to 20 countries, we're also seeing real sustained greenhouse gas emissions reductions that have lasted over this 10 year period that are not like blips. So they're not, you know, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis or COVID or these other things. They're, they're real evidence and that's heartening. But when we're talking about net zero, one of the, one of the things that that implies is the ability to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere. (laughs) And this is a technology that exists, but is wildly expensive. Yeah. How does that play out in this report? as a tool that might be necessary? And what does it apply for the remnant emissions that we might have in the future? Yeah, so increasingly carbon capture and storage just kind of has to factor in to our suite of solutions because we are not reducing greenhouse gas emissions fast enough, nor fully enough. So we need kind of every tool in our arsenal. However, asterisk, 
you're correct that these technologies are still extremely expensive, wildly inefficient, not scaled up yet enough to make even close to a dent. But the hope is that they will in the future. My worry, and it's not just my worry, but others have commented on this as well, that if we dwell too much, and by dwell, I mean funnel public dollars and investments and such into carbon capture and storage, we then neglect those real greenhouse gas emissions reductions um, in our transport system, in our buildings, in our industry, et cetera, that have to happen too. And that also can create a whole bunch of incredible co-benefits. So there are virtually no co-benefits you know, associated with carbon capture and storage. There are lots associated with, with the real emissions reductions from vehicles, from buildings, from changing how our cities are designed, et cetera. Interesting. And when you investigate and dive deep into those countries that have been able to reduce mm -hmm. greenhouse gas emissions in a durable and substantial way, what are the factors that underlie those reductions? Yeah, so it really varies country by country, as you can imagine. So some of those reductions have lasted more than 10 years. They've lasted 20 or 30. The U.S. is actually one of those countries that has sustained emissions reductions over the, over the last 10 years. The UK, France, Japan, and others are, are on that list of countries that have shown reductions. So in some places, it's policies and laws that target energy efficiency. So making sure that we demand less energy for our buildings, for our vehicles, for our industrial processes, um, this kind of thing. There are climate laws that have resulted in reduced or avoided emissions in around 56 countries, I guess that cover more than half of global emissions. There's definitely been a major shift in supply. So we want to reduce our demand. We want to, you know, obviously reduce how much energy we ask for to heat our homes and power our vehicles. Or, but we also want to change the supply, of course, and move away from natural gas, coal, fossil fuels of all varieties towards renewable energy supplies. So towards solar, wind, hydro, biomass, et cetera. And because we've seen the cost of solar go down like 85% in the last 10 years, the cost of wind go down by 55%, the cost of batteries, lithium ion batteries, which are that really important, you know, energy storage mechanism that if we don't have a place to store all this renewable energy, it's useless to us. The, the plummeting costs of those have really signaled that the train has kind of left the station, or at least the economies of scale are starting to deliver what we need to shift our supply towards renewables. So those are some of the things I think we should talk more about urban transitions because cities figured really largely in this latest IPCC report. And in my humble opinion, in my own personal view, I think that's a really exciting scale. There's just so much going on in, in cities that perhaps shows the way forward. Well, let's go uh, forward into the urban environment then. What do we know of cities and how does that play a role when we think about continued decarbonization? Or is it part of the story from the last 10 or 15 years? Yeah, it's definitely part of the story. So cities are, are really interesting places, right? They're responsible for perhaps up to you know 70% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So they're an incredible source of emissions. They're also a really important place where solutions are actually implemented. They're also where impacts play out as well, right? This is where we have the heat waves and the floods and, and the need for adaptation to climate change at the same time. So the intersection between greenhouse gas reduction and adaptation is really important in the urban spaces. So what's happening in cities? Well, this report comes to some really important conclusions around how people lead their lives in cities and what power they have to choose lower carbon behaviors. So the report 
shows us that if we combine effective policies with improved infrastructure and better technologies, we can trigger behavior change that could lead to 40 to 70% of the needed emissions reductions, which seems enormous, except what this isn't saying, this is not saying it's up to you and I as individuals to just make better choices, to just voluntarily change our behavior. In fact, it's saying the opposite, that our hands are sort of tied, that we're locked into high carbon pathways um, because of the vehicles that are available to us, because of the way our cities are designed and the way our homes are built and our office buildings are built. So it's really, really, really difficult for you and I as individuals to make lower carbon choices unless our hands are kind of untied by better infrastructure, by better policy and, and all of this. So compact, complete cities, you know, walkable cities, weaving nature throughout cities. These are all kind of really important solutions that we can implement at the urban scale. So I think there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah. One of the things that future views of climate change always needs to address is growing population around the world, economic development, and, and the extent of the carbon intensity of economic development. Now, when you think sure. about cities around the world, we expect to see a lot of growth in cities in the developing world. That's often how people get their first access to energy services, higher incomes. And so how do those dynamics of urbanization and the changes in where populations are actually physically located interact with uh, cities as a means of, of decarbonization? Yeah, it's actually, in my view, a really important opportunity. So I think it was around 2008, 2009 that more people lived in cities than lived outside of them. So that that urbanization trend kind of hit a, an inflection point that really demonstrated just how urbanized the planet has become. And that trend is, is only continuing. So from a justice perspective, of course, it's absolutely crucial that folks, especially in lower income countries, obtain access to the health and well-being and employment opportunities, food security, et cetera, that come from access to energy. So energy poverty is a very real problem for billions of people around the planet. Moving towards cities brings with it a whole host of challenges and opportunities. When we concentrate people together, closely together, we can serve them better with transit, of course. When they're spread out over vast distances, it's really hard to reach the demand necessary to justify uh, large-scale investments in transit infrastructure. We can, but don't always, build buildings that are more efficient and that save energy when people are more densely packed together. So there are a lot of opportunities that I think come from the urbanization trend. There's also a lot of like innovation and creativity and that kind of thing that springs up in cities. We certainly see these cultures of innovation where, where we see sustainability precincts and kind of sustainable transformations in neighborhoods and that kind of thing crop up in, in cities around the world that, that are really exciting in terms of thinking about what the future might hold. So when you think about a, an urban environment that fills 40 to 70% of the gap we need for, for emissions reductions, how does it look different from today? And what is the modal city dweller what does their life look like in that world? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the answer is different if we're looking just in the next 20 years than if we're looking, you know, 50 or 80 years from now. I, I'm afraid that my imagination fails when I try and reach too far out into the distant future. I mean, 50, 80 years from now, they're living in the pod and going to the office with VR. Yeah. yeah but but right, like over, exactly. you know, the lives that people experience. Sure. So, so what we know about sustainable cities are that they are compact and complete. So that means 
that, you know, there's, there's ideas like a 15 minute city where you should be able to meet all of your basic needs and live and work within 15 minutes sort of distance from your home. So that means that residences are kind of co-located with commercial districts and, and work so that you don't have to live out in the suburbs and commute an hour and a half to the central business district or wherever you work. That means reintegrating nature throughout our cities. So using um, natural ecosystems, forests, wetlands, green roofs and walls, permeable surfaces, all kinds of stuff to make our cities more resilient to impacts of climate change, to deal with flooding and, and extreme heat, while also using those, anything that's green and growing sucks up carbon, right? So those are embedding carbon sinks throughout our cities while also cooling them. It means absolutely ratcheting up the bar on our building codes. So this is something that is out of your control and my control, right? What are the standards to which all of our homes and buildings must be built so that at the very least, everything new we build is net zero ready or on the path to net zero. But then the really tough nut to crack is retrofitting. So all of our existing building stock has to be retrofit. And that is a scale of change, like really nothing else. Well, I don't know. I struggle to think uh, what else we've changed as fast as we would need to retrofit our existing housing and commercial building spaces to be on track for a net zero world. That means supporting electrified mass transit, active transit, walking, cycling, this kind of thing, which has incredible co-benefits for public health, mental health, physical health, et cetera. That means making it affordable and inclusive so that we don't have sort of islands, sustainable islands for the rich and vulnerable, uh, low efficiency communities for the poor. So these are all sorts of like, a, you know, colliding factors that in my view, make up at least the broad parameters of a sustainable city. But there's lots and lots of different ways that would look in, in practice. And it's really very cultural and, and unique to, to each community around the world. Yeah, that was my next question was, how do you, you know, do those principles vary or does their expression vary between Toronto and Lagos? Sure. Yeah. Well, so I do a lot of, um, this, this is not directly within this IPCC report, but my own work in the past has focused on climate change scenario building and envisioning sustainable communities in the future using, you know, imagery and storytelling and various other tools. And what it comes down to for me is that there is absolutely not just one single way that a sustainable community or city will look in 30 or 50 years. I think that would be a shame. That would be such a homogenization of human experience. That would be pretty tragic, honestly. And so, you know, communities really vary in the extent to which they want or demand multi-generational housing, for instance, or access to different recreation opportunities or how dense feels right to that community. But there are ways of working with these different factors, right? That uh, in climates where active transportation and cycling, it's really possible all year long, then you have different infrastructure than in places like the coldest parts of Canada where I'm from. And you know, there's only four to six months of the year where you can really safely cycle, for instance. So it absolutely looks different from community to community. And I would just say that the best sustainability transitions and transformations I've seen in urban spaces are the ones that are based on really creative and inclusive community-based visioning processes that unearth all of those values and make them real. When you talk about making those real and eliciting those sort of community preferences, do you think of that as a sort of planning process, like the zoning board gets together and we talk about, or is it a market-driven process? Like people choose better communities or better services, some combination mm -hmm. of the two? 
Yeah. Not being a planner, I feel very free to criticize planning processes. I think planning and and zoning public participation processes that are typical to at least the North American cities that I've worked in have really good intentions, but they tend to not be as creative as they could be, nor as inclusive as they could be. So there's usually a small subset of the population that turns up to these things and the squeaky wheels kind of get the grease. and, And this is sort of how the visioning processes go. If you just think really much like what your own neighborhood, who participates in those things in your own neighborhood, you know, people come to mind. So I think there are some communities that are over consulted and kind of exhausted with the public participation process when it comes to urban design. So we need to do a better job of being more creative and engaging. Youth voices are often excluded. New immigrant communities are often excluded, whether through because of language barriers or just inability to access the, you know, the time or whatever to participate in the processes. So there's lots and lots that needs to be fixed there. But I think you're right that there are other processes at play, like just market dynamics in terms of, you know, people choosing to pay for or support the kind of vision of community that they are able to afford and see themselves fitting into. I'd like to return to the IPCC report for a moment. We talked earlier about the the real shift that we've seen over the last decade in both our expectations of future emissions and thus global warming and and these new observations for where countries have been able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In that context, you talk both about technology and the falling costs of wind and solar power, the falling costs of batteries, and you talked about policy. And the sort of report talks about both the broader scope as well as the higher ambition of, of public policies that have been devised. Does one or the other, in your view, matter more for successes over the last 10 years? And will one or the other matter more over the next 20? Yeah, that's a great way to frame the question. And I don't think that all IPCC authors would agree on the answer to that question. So I'll just... Yes, this, is not a, this is not a consensus question. This is nope. a Sarah Birch question. Yeah, it sure isn't. So I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I, I think that, that responding ambitiously and quickly to climate change is not nearly anymore so much a technical problem as it is a social and political one. So I think it's really, really important that those renewable energy technologies have, in some cases, reach those economies of scale that make them more available. Technology is an absolutely integral element of the solution to, or at least a path forward on climate change. I'm not sure that we're going to solve climate change per se, but at least, you know, progress on the issue. But so many of the technologies that we've needed have been around for 10, 20, 30 years. There are some harder to abate sectors, industrial processes, this kind of thing that, you know, yes, we need technical innovation in chemicals production, in steel production, this kind of thing. Battery technology is one of them. And we've needed that innovation and we still need that innovation. But others, you know, higher efficiency vehicles, electric vehicles, for that matter, building technologies like this stuff has been around for decades. But the uptake of that, whether we scale up the use of those technologies, then a matter for public policy, for for governance and policy, and also a question of behavior change of social norms and, and the cultures around around energy use. So I am very concerned when I watch what has been afoot, at least in North America, but elsewhere as well, in terms of the sort of divisiveness of the climate change issue and the kind of fractured politics around it, because it makes an issue that is scientifically established fact that the human combustion of fossil fuels putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is leading to warming and that that warming is leading to a whole array of climate change impacts that is bad for all of us in the short, medium, and long term. There is virtually no question about that. 
but all of this is about politics, right? So whether or not, you know, we choose to absorb that reality and work together on solutions that we might agree on to sort of make the world a better place on a whole lot of fronts um, is a very, you know, very deeply fraught political and cultural challenge. So, yeah. So I think, I think not all, you know, technology is important. Data information are absolutely central, but it's by no means the whole picture. Right. And that actually leads me to where I wanted to close our conversation, which is the tools that we use to think about the working group three areas of purview, right? The historical stuff, we observe the energy system very, very closely. We, we've tracked carbon emissions around the world better than, than we have in the past, but it's so closely tied to energy systems. We have a good handle on what's happening. But the future part is challenging compared to what the other working groups deal with, right? Physics is a static system. You, you know, you force the climate and it'll change. Now there's uncertainty in the physical response, but it doesn't have the same human element that the working group three analysis has. That's true. And, and you're a sort of a super consumer, I would say, as an IPCC author and as a scholar generally of the sort of analysis that underlies our kind of visions of the future what emissions may be, what will allow them to change or move between scenarios. So from your experience, I'm really interested in understanding like, what do we not study? What's left out? I mean, our conversation, our whole conversation is occurring, and this, this report was introduced after the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has shocked the global energy system, is probably going to be a precipitating event for reordering a lot of global geopolitics. Yeah. And we don't model those things. What do you think is missing when you think about the human element and the way we think about the sort of work that the, the IPCC Working Group 3 has to review and, and, and synthesize? Yeah, so, so it is true that the IPCC assessment cycle follows a particular process that takes several years and, and cannot respond to like shock crisis events real time. That's not what it's built to do. However, it does try and kind of wrap its arms, so to speak, around work that does look at crisis and energy security and conflict um, over time and what impact that has on, you know, the uptake of technologies or, you know, the pathway that energy transitions follow. So, so there is a lot of work being done on that. I think there's a couple of areas that the IPCC, especially working group three, is moving into that I think are more attuned to the times and take on board, you know, this, this thing that I said previously, which is that this is a deeply social and political challenge. There's a lot more work being done on social movements and behavior change. So how how do those emerge, change, shift? How do we like identify, you know, create our identities around energy consumption and, and how we deal with climate change? So you know, the young people now who've lived through two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, if you were 18, say now, you, you might not even really remember the youth movement that, that Greta Thunberg and, and others catalyzed immediately prior to, to the COVID-19 pandemic because it was shut down so harshly for two years. But those those kinds of movements seem to come up out of nowhere. They're not from nowhere. They're bubbling along under the surface and then a match is lit and they kind of spring to life and, and change the discourse around what's possible and who's to blame and, and this kind of thing. But you're absolutely right that the social and political side inherently has more chaos in it, you know, and it has more room for surprise. But I also think that the flip side of that is that there's so much latent potential there 
that, you know, really understanding how climate change aligns with and responding to climate change activates our values and can open a window for us to pursue futures or pursue communities that we really want to pursue. Can we agree that we want better public health? Can we agree that we want um, more affordable housing? Can we agree that access to nature benefits everybody? And now let's figure out a way to, you know, to deliver that on the ground. So, so I think the IPCC struggles with moving fast enough to respond to these kinds of shifting social movements, but it's starting to locate issues of justice more centrally to the questions of climate change responses, which I think is really important, politics, conflict, et cetera. Um, so that means different kinds of scholars. You know, it's a disciplinary shift as much as anything within the IPCC that I think will affect its relevance and its impact going forward. How has being an IPCC author affected your own research plans? Oh, goodness. So it's an incredibly laborious and really stimulating process. It takes, you know, many years. It's it's like no other scientific process I've ever been a part of. You know, you sit around the table with the members of your chapter and maybe it's 13 or 16 people from 13 or 16 different countries with 13 or 16 different languages, although everybody has to speak English. You know, we have different disciplines. So we try and communicate across our, our disciplines. An economist has to talk to a political scientist and understand why they view the world as they view it. And I think that's a really powerful process. I think it's a really important way to tackle something like climate change, which is not reducible to just, you know, a single framework or a single way of thinking about it. And it's also, you know, honestly made me focus even more on the local level because there's a lot of really great work going on internationally. And I actually think that international climate change negotiations are a really important process for kind of collectively agreeing that this is important and that we all need to work together on it. But when I see real stuff implemented on the ground, like building retrofit programs and transit infrastructure investments and energy efficiency initiatives and nature-based solutions in cities. That's the stuff that gets me really excited because I actually see physical, tangible evidence of good stuff happening. Yeah, I actually fully agree. We have a colleague here that works on just transition, particularly in India for coal communities. It's an interesting area because a lot of the dialogue that you see from, from our perspective or probably from your perspective is like a very elite academic yeah. global leadership conversation that is entirely divorced from like the bureaucrats who work in cities, like trying to figure out how they're going to fund the water system when the coal industry is gone. And yeah. so we've been doing a lot of work trying to interface with those practitioners, right? And, and understand what are the incentives that they uh, experience to see if we can push the granularity of that conversation to an entirely different place. It's been a very fascinating research endeavor. That's great. And I, and I think, you know, we need to consider those two kind of spheres as not divorced from one another, right? They seem to be. And I hear this sometimes, you know, I work with students occasionally and they're passionate, they're fired up, you know, they really want to do good work on climate change, but they want to do big work. This is something that I often see among younger people these days. And I, I get it. They want to see big, you know, tectonic shifts. They want to be a part of that kind of change. They want to do something small, like a cycling collective or like a community garden. But, you know, those cycling collectives and community gardens are <laughs> really powerful parts of the picture. And not only are they directly regenerative of communities, they actually affect people's food security and physical health and, you know, affordability of neighborhoods. They affect people's lives, but they're part of a bigger, you know, wave. They're part of the, the all of the multifaceted aspects of this transition 
that is not just one big national level agreement internationally with people, you know, sitting around a big formal table in Bonn or wherever it's, it's what this actually looks like on the ground. So I think those every little bit counts and um, it's that stuff on the ground that can be very inspiring as well. Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed our conversation today and uh, appreciate all the work you've done with the IPCC and in your own research endeavors. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Sarah for helping us understand the recent IPCC report and for sharing some of her other research. We also have had experts on the show to discuss the previous IPCC reports, and those are linked in our show description. Quick programming note, Energy 360 will be off for the rest of August, giving our team a much needed break. We'll resume in September and already have some episodes lined up on just transitions, resilience, and much more. Meanwhile, catch up on past episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening. See you in September.